I'm very full. I've, I've only got one out of 14. I'm not satisfied do, at do all. Do you not want me to bring cakes out yet? I think we maybe take this episode as a food break, don't we? I've eaten about 40 sausage rolls. <laughs> if you've not got the stamina for it. <laughs> just eat, I mean, there's a certain amount of pastry after, after a while. I, there are more sausage rolls. I mean, rolls. I, don't know, I don't know how many people you thought were coming over, Steve. <laughs> I've never seen so many sausage rolls. I think the idea was little and often grazing, because yeah, yeah. that's actually quite good for you, I think, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's meant to be better but, for you. But yeah. uh, <laughs> we didn't really graze. We, we just we ate loads of food. Yeah. <laughs> I came to podcasts and have ended up obese and diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> This is Set Piece Many of the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are in order of suitability, if they were to be finalists in the latest season of RuPaul's Drag Race, Stephen Wyeth is Brooklyn Heights, more diva than ballerina throwing shade in the corner. Rory Smith is Evie Oddly, all limbs and no laughs, but nose reading is fundamental. And Andy Hinchcliffe is Dr. Silky Nutmeg Ganache, bit on the larger side and always had a problem with padding. That makes me, by the way, a Kyria Davenport, the one that nobody liked. Uh, we'd love to know the crossover of our audience and RuPaul's. I think at the moment it might be just my wife. Uh, at, the, at the moment I would say that the crossover between the people on the podcast and RuPaul's Drag Race is zero. <laughs> what language are you speaking? <laughs> The food, him, I don't know. as we've already mentioned, is still going strong. However, the people consuming the food are not, although Chinch is still enjoying those very crispy Watsits. Um, we are also gratefully receiving all of your correspondence during this month of relative inactivity, so worry not. We will be more specific when the summer run is over. If you'd like to send them to at setpiecemenu, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. So time for part three of our series on what is a legitimate football voice. If you're thinking part three, what happened to parts one and two? Well, they clearly happen without you. So head back and swat up. We'll see you when you return. We've already asked how we got like this and then considered what holds greater significance, experience or theory. And now let us consider how the crucible in which football debate takes place has changed so much. This is the platform proliferation episode. Is it harder to determine what a legitimate voice is when we can listen to so many more and have so many ways of offering our own opinion too? Social media has extended the traditional media, given a place for new media to thrive and provided a point for all those not in the media to convene and both contribute and also throw the odd sling or arrow at each other and the media. So given the proliferation of platforms and possibilities, is it no wonder we're struggling to see the wood for the trees as we ask once again, what is a legitimate football voice. Well, I think the, we should probably start with the academic contextualisation of this subject. Are we going to define our terms? I'm going to define my terms in this voice because I'm conscious that if I don't do it in, a, in, a, in what I hope is a vaguely comic <laughs> voice, people will think that I'm a <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, Oh, it's been so long since we needed a beep. So, with, with that said, I think it's really important, it is really important to think about the, the platforms on which we on which we have these discussions because uh, it, it's a Marshall McLuhan quote but the medium is the message so the, the and then there's funny if I read a lot of books about this not really related to football but they influenced my thinking about it about a year eighteen months ago um, Kill All Normies is a good book on kind of online culture um, there's a book by Neil Postman who's not a postman uh, about being a postman <laughs> about um, <laughs> the um, a, 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 an academic called Neil Postman called um, Entertaining ourselves to death, I think, uh, and it's all about. And then there's a book called um, "Life the Movie" by Neil Gabler, which I'd also recommend. But the it's, it, it, that, that might be the first episode where, in the first five minutes, you've got a reading list. Yes, go and read those. All those books are really good. Read I'd, them. Um, come back to us. I'd also re recommend Chris Hedges' Empire of Illusion. That's also a really good book. I gave it to my colleague Tarek Panja. Uh, 
towards the end, or I recommended it to Tarek, and Tarek read it, and during the first week of the Women's World Cup, he kept telling me that it, it had messed his brain up, because <laughs> it had made him see through everything. But I think the, the I can also recommend Lee Child's first Jack Reacher novel, yeah. Tripwire. That's excellent. <laughs> I thought it was Killing Floor. Yeah, they're all the same, aren't they? <laughs> Just the batters point. people and yeah. saves the day. That is the point. <laughs> but anyway, the he's, he's also a dirty blonde, by the way, like Chinch. Is that right? We're beginning to think that it's might, it might be Jack Reacher that he's trying ah, to emulate. I thought it was Eminem. I think I've got Reacher's. <laughs> I think I've got Reacher's weight, not his height. They are making a Reacher TV they series. Are. What? They... Now we know what Chinch is going to do. Wow, there we go. I've got some strong. Th- I don't know if they've cast it yet, so this will be w- wildly out of date. But uh, two people who I think should be Reacher are either Chris Hemsworth, who'd be an excellent Reacher, no. uh, or Alexander Skarsgård, um, the guy who played um, Eric in True Blood and also was in the first series of uh, I don't know who that is, Big but Little Lies. He's perfect. He's perfect. And Why he's don't they just get Jack Reacher to play him? Oh, right, easier, yeah. wouldn't it? Because he's a real person. So there's he's your out there. List. Jack Reacher, all that. This, this has left me as cold as RuPaul's Drag Race. It's, it's men's trash literature. It wouldn't be up your alley. No, out. no, no. I don't like men. You don't like men's don't trash like, alleys? I don't like blokes. That's what I don't it's like blokes. It's not chick lit, it's guy lit. I, um, it's great stuff. I'm just, yeah, just don't, don't like blokes. You don't just, like blokes? The man sitting next to you has a hundred tattoos. Yeah, but he's a man. Chinch Am is I? a man. Am Chinch I? is a man. Really? He's a man. I'm not. He looks like a bloke and he undermines it by speaking. I'm but he's not. he's not a bloke. He's not no. a bloke. No. He's not, certainly not a fella, is he? <laughs> not a geezer. No, definitely not a geezer. <laughs> I'm a chap. <laughs> Tell you who is a geezer. Terry Hardcastle. <laughs> he certainly Terry is. By the way, Terry Hardcastle has just left the room because his, his small children are arriving back Terry from Terry Hardcastle doesn't have children. Not one Hang to on be known. You, you were being all intellectual and we got off point here. Let's get back to being is really clever. Is this last clever. two minutes proof that we're intellectual because that doesn't on, work no, at all? So I, well, all? The only reason I recommended those books was to make myself look intelligent. Mm. But the, the subtext of it was that the platforms on which we have discussions or on which we, the, we, in, on which we consume information irrevocably and inevitably alter the forms of those discussions. So Postman and Gabler, what they talk about a lot is the way that the switch from print to TV changed the news. So it changed what we think of as important, changed the way that we consume it, it changed the, the level of debate. So I think they did a study... That's the door, Steve. Um, they did a study of... I think you find it's Terry. <laughs> Terry Hardcastle doesn't answer the door. He just jumped through the window. <laughs> The did you see the way he looked at you then? <laughs> you are finished. <laughs> they did a study of the relative reading levels required to understand a presidential debate between Lincoln and one of his opponents and between, I think, Nixon and Kennedy and in 61. And it had gone from like, you needed like a, a year 11 reading level to understand the first one to a year five reading level to understand the second one. And now they think it's... You, you, you can like Ed would understand <laughs> the level of, of like presidential discourse. So I think, and social media, I think has without question accelerated that process. So it's not just that the, we have this proliferation of voices; it's the nature of those voices has changed fundamentally as well. Social media re- rewards the most extreme viewpoints. We touched on this, I think, in episode one, where we've, we've, we have this tendency to find any extreme viewpoint at all to create either a straw man to argue against or to prove that there is a kind of multiplicity of thought when there isn't. But social media, it encourages brevity, it encourages bite. The more bite in the comment, the better on social media. And it encourages people to drift to the extremes to get attention, effectively. And that, I think, has fundamentally changed 
the way we talk about football that it that that has contributed to everything becoming a lot more toxic in a way that it wasn't even in the era of like forums like 10 years ago when everyone was kind of in their own silos protected from their enemies now that we're all exposed to each other you have the tension of you can see what you know Everton fans can see what Liverpool fans are thinking and Man City fans you can see what Man United fans are thinking and Arsenal and Spurs but it's also that the, the, for, the format in which those, th- those thoughts are presented is, n- is naturally antagonistic. Mm-hmm. And that, changes, that has changed our conversation. What is the value, and there is one obviously, but what is the specific value of giving a voice to the previously voiceless in society around football? Because you're right that there would have been forums prior to social media, but prior to that, there wouldn't have even really, if you wouldn't have had an online presence, six you would six. have had... Uh, yes, linear listening. You would have had fans meetings, fans group meetings. Um, but given that that would have been limited by all manner of things, what is the value to giving that voice to more and more people? I guess it, it gives you, in terms of social media, what a lot of journalists would say to you is that it's really good. it keeps you in check. At its best, Twitter keeps it. It gives you access to. Uh, it gives you an insight into, how, into what fans are thinking. It gives you access to, to a variety, a plurality of voices that means you are exposed to more experiences and more perspectives than you would be otherwise. It can, I find, if you follow lots of different people, it can break you out of a filter bubble as much as trap you in one. Um, it gives those people a chance to, to air their views and to be heard, because I think that no matter how minor you are on Twitter there is a chance that you will be heard by someone important um, and that might, that might, if you've got a really good idea or a really good perspective, that might lead to you becoming an, influ- an, in- an influential voice. Um, has so it th- de- there are benefits to it. Has I've it democratised football conversation in the West and has it been able to do it in lots of other ways? So those who would be the voices money mm-hmm. and now the voices are not those necessarily not limited to those with means to control some of the conversation but they are not able to control all of the conversation so is there a value to those margins to be fair even if you look at the number of, we talked about fan media last on kind of being good on twitter but who have been given a a voice and a platform that they have used to express really interesting, really different views, then that yeah, social media has definitely benefited that in a way that it wouldn't. I think there has all that it wouldn't previously. I think there's always been a desire to get fans' views in to the media. But I think whether that was like letters to local newspapers or kind of fanzines or people in pr- club programs but it took and a lot then, more effort and to and get your view, there, your view over didn't it you had yeah. to go to more effort to write than, a letter yes or yeah to do, or turn up somewhere rather to get your than, voice heard. than just tweet and non i wonder if social media has has de-legitimized de- that because though those those views were very carefully and thoughtfully put whereas some 140 280 character uh, tweets aren't vox pops in radio and television yeah. were always the bane of my life working it because horrible editors absolutely demanded them they wanted the voice of the the of average the person on the street it's the first thing you get the work experience to do <laughs> exactly but they were so time consuming to have to go out and put together you had to edit them down all so that you could basically hear a collection of voices less informed than the expert on the matter yeah. giving their viewpoint but yeah the, the voice of the the voice of the person on the street has always been a big driver behind the news yeah. agenda yeah I and mean, i think that's i, I think to an extent what Social media's done is is make that the gathering of those voices quicker, 
So are uh, there voices that should be heard? Social media has allowed them to th- be heard. There are they, voices, they should be, there are voices should that should be heard yeah. that have been empowered by social media and that is a good thing yeah. and there are voices that should not be heard that have been empowered by social media and that's a bad thing but that's also interesting because you would when you were putting together vox pops you would essentially go and ask anybody just to <laughs> frankly get the task over and done with as the person as that possible. was walking closest <laughs> yes, to exactly. the office front door are you a manchester united fan are you a manchester city fan well you, can you pretend to be the other because i really want to go back in but that, that they are you are soliciting information from somebody who is not necessarily a legitimate voice but you are making them legitimate in the same way kind of, that those pieces that we mentioned both before on this summer special um, and also today about the fact that you are attempting to balance out an argument by putting a social media tweet in as uh, so offering a point of view. Here is, th- that, that, that's the problem. So the Vox, the Vox Pop was, was also the, the bane of everyone's existence in print because it's, it's an awful task. It's, it's bad enough having to go onto the streets of Manchester and try and identify strangers who don't want to talk to you as United or City fans. If you're talking about an actual news story, it's, it's bizarre, like having to go and do like Vox Pops about what people thought about the Maddie McCann case. That was horrible. That's a horrible way to spend your time. Mm. And I had to do it. It was very annoying. Um, but at least with a Vox Pop done well, and most Vox Pops, let's all be honest, are not done well because you go and find the five or six people who are closest to you. Certainly not by me. And then, and then you go back inside because you hate doing Vox Pops. But a Vox Pop, do, a Vox Pop done well is a, is a fairly random assortment of people. So here are six mm-hmm. people who were walking past who are Man United fans. This is what they think. It's, there's, I mean, you wouldn't submit it as a scientific study. No, but, but is it, it, is but it a box ticking exercise? We've got the pundit, oh, we've got yeah, the former player, we've got the coach, yeah. we've got the fan. We have to tick that box. Yeah, it, is, it is a Regardless of what exercise. they say, we've asked the fans. But is, exactly. it, not, is, yeah. it, not extraordinary, is it not extraordinary, though, that you'd have a situation where you'd have somebody within, from within the club who might know what was going on, a well-informed journalist who has a good idea of what's going on. But what you actually also need to do is hear from four, five or six people with almost no insight whatsoever <laughs> to contribute. But unless you have that, then you haven't got the full picture. That's what I'm yeah, saying. It is, does it become a boxing yeah. We have to do this. Or people yeah. say, why haven't you asked the fans it, what they think? That was my they very don't neg- know anything about the story, so why would we ask them? That was we my, have to yeah. ask them. That was my very negative take on being asked to do it on a regular <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. basis. But it, it became a convention. And, it's, and I, I presume the theory behind it is that people like to feel that they are being represented and looked these ignorant idiots that that is my voice it's also heard. a search for content though because yeah. often you won't be able to hear from that pundit because uh, like we said last week very expensive uh, but also the club might not be talking because it might be about a transfer which they're yeah. keeping tight-lipped so there is there is an understandable element at least when you're trying to get content and something to fill the airway also in, in terms of live games we, we we tend to very rarely we use it but sometimes we we do is to kind of take people to the game these are fans outside the stadium come on birmingham Brilliant. That's you know, it's not what they're saying. It's like you're trying to convey that, that, that this is the feeling of the sense of, of sense, being there. Nothing particularly yeah. specific, but yeah. yes, but the, a feeling. So, the, the, so that's all annoying. Vox pops are annoying. No one's dis- no one's disputing mm-hmm. that, and you can question the, the, the legitimacy of them. But I think the traditional vox pop was at least random. It was if you needed to go out onto the street and ask half a dozen people what they thought, you were getting a relatively random sample. What people do now is they substitute. They switch in Twitter for Vox Pops. So no one bothers going out onto the streets and asking fans what they think anymore. They just put some tweets up on the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. And the problem with that is you have all these different views represented, some of which are very extreme. So it, it could be, if you, it can be used to prove literally any point at all that you want, despite the fact that it might just be one guy saying, this is a terrible signing, or this is a great signing, when literally everybody else is saying, 
the opposite, but you t- you can create that spread, and that, to me, that's artificial. That's there's a falsehood there. And you the, can the, then edit. You, you can then edit those tweets to to follow the narrative that you want to follow. You can have all these views coming in, but then you pick and choose the ones you want to put on screen exactly. as well. Yeah. yeah. Again, false equivalency. It's a determination to be balanced rather than to find the pervading truth. Yeah, but yeah. but also the funny thing about those vox pops is that you would try and find a mix of views because it was very very rarely unanimous. So you'd yeah. attempt to find mixed views, and then as you wrote your script into it, usually on radio, uh, you would say. And these people on the streets of Manchester have mixed views. Yeah. And so there was, there was nothing kind of... The content was of no editorial value whatsoever. We hear it in the race for the, the Conservative leadership as always, but with Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. We have to... We're here from a supporter of Boris, and then we have to hear from a supporter of... saying completely the opposite, but we've got to put the balance in. One saying one thing, one saying the other. So again, they're just... Again, they're just in, in terms of what they have, they feel obliged. Well, why not do nothing? It's pointless actually doing it because you're just saying one supporter of Boris is going to say one thing, supporter of Jeremy Hunt is clearly going to support his. So what's the point in doing it? But they feel they have to do it and get the balance there. So it's the same in, in, in politics as it is in, in sport, presumably, as well. Uh, there are more places upon which you can speak, but there are also more ways to listen. And the, the thirst for information has surely grown as well. There are, would you say, more fans are more interested in what's going on and they are finding more ways to access that information and so therefore the proliferation of platforms is not only for those fans to speak and air their views but it is also for what some might call the more legitimate to disseminate that information as well so what is what is the value of the whether it's media which is which is not fan media which is just simply more television channels more uh newspaper well suppose newspaper online outlets uh podcasts which i hear is an excellent medium mm. which i would very mm. much recommend mm. people uh, to subscribe to so what 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 how much does that play a part in what people want to hear is the fact that they want more because there is more ways of finding out and there are more people telling them yeah, i suppose that demand for quantity potentially affects the overall quality which, you know, that filter yeah. down effect, doesn't it? There'll be those who are just interested in the very fine details and that's the, the top of the pyramid. But there will be those who want to delve a little bit deeper, which is what gives those voices to an ever broader church of footballing opinion because there are those who will delve as deep as they possibly can. And, and they'll either, as, as Rory was saying earlier, they'll either use that information to their benefits to expand their viewpoint or they'll disappoint they'll disappear down the hole of the opinion that they've already established and and look for those people who who agree with them and yeah. and and validate their own viewpoint yeah I, it's interesting it's, there is the the scope of it now and the scale of it is so grand and so vast you wonder is that was that demand always there or is it a demand that has arisen in in the face of there being so mu- so many alternatives. Well, I think the more information that there is, the more people will go looking for it, and the better informed people become. I mean, it makes Chinch and my job potentially harder now than it would have been, say, twenty or thirty years ago, because the average football viewer mm. is better informed. They've got an awful lot of statistical information to hand. They they know more about. A vast quantity of, of footballers and, and global leagues and competitions. So you you need to have more up your sleeve mm. to to present information during the context of a football commentary than than something that people already know or could have found out before the game quite easily themselves. The information that we have access to is no longer exclusive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I suppose there's, there's, uh, that's the kind of the positive consequence of it where where people have become have used all the excess information to become better informed but i wonder as well if there is a 
if, yeah, the, the risk of repeating myself, there's a filter bubble effect where people become so consumed by all of the information they can absorb about their own club, their own team, that they're trying to lose sight of the broader football ecosystem and the fact that it all kind of interlinks, whether, whether it's possible to now basically ignore the existence of other teams because you can only you, you can if you want absorb all the information you want about your own team and not really hear anything else. And another viewpoint one example from the last few days on our on our Twitter we get lots of people getting think little in jokes from the podcast that people then find things maybe in the more mainstream media that they then push our way for a kind of cheeky or oh, we we know what you would think of this and one of them very recently was uh, the Premier League tweeting out is Leighton Baines the best Premier League left back of all time. And one of our listeners just tagged us in on this thing. Would you care to comment, <laughs> knowing exactly you know, what viewpoint we might take? So I, I just replied with her, well, he's not even the best Premier League left back to have represented Everton. Yes. Now, someone who doesn't listen to the podcast, but was clearly looking at the replies to this initial Premier League, jumped straight and goes, well, who is it then? If it's not Leighton Baines, who is it? And I think, well, just if you just click on yeah, our yeah. Twitter handle, you'll see yeah. Andy Hinchcliffe's yeah. name there and it all will be revealed. But it's that aggression that you were yeah, talking yeah. about earlier. Mm. You have come up with a viewpoint that I don't agree with. So now I demand some mm. kind of explanation from you as to why you don't agree with me. Is that not the game you play on Twitter or is that because they genuinely want you to apologise? They, they genuinely, hand on heart, feel that way? Or is that the games, is that what you do on Twitter? Because I don't do it. Is this what Twitter enables you to do people don't apologize on twitter no they're okay. like pe- everyone on twitter is like the fonz <laughs> i see really they don't say sorry ah. i think again I, th- I i think we probably can't separate football from the rest of the world on on that i think that you see it a lot in kind of on more like left-leaning twitter accounts there is a tendency to kind of sift through stuff that other other left-leaning people have said looking for wrong thing, yeah, yeah. looking for signs that they're not quite as woke as they ought to be. And I think it just seems to be a, there seems to be a kind of demand for purity in a lot of ways. In, in a, and that, that applies way beyond football. I think the thing that's surprising with football, it, and I, I mentioned it before, is that, is that all, basically all fans are the same. If you, just as you support Norwich or Ipswich, the way in which you support Norwich or Ipswich is probably the same in which Norwich fans support Norwich and Ipswich fans support Ipswich. Like you, everyone is a fan. Being a fan is a universal experience. And some fans are more committed than others, but basically being a fan is being a fan. There's no... And I know that all clubs like to talk about how their fans are special, but I think we should all probably be mature enough and clever enough to work out that that's a marketing ploy and they don't really mean it. And that basically we're all customers of this brand and that's kind of what's happening. But what, one thing that does surprise me is that I don't get why fans find it so odd that fans of other clubs have biased opinions towards those clubs. I, don't f- I find it odd when you see Spurs fans laughing at Arsenal fans for thinking that Granit Xhaka is a good midfielder. Why would Arsenal fans not think that Granit Xhaka is a good midfielder? He plays for Arsenal. Mm. Why, would Arsenal fans, why would you expect Arsenal fans to think Moussa Sissoko is better than Granit Xhaka? That's not how this works. And I, I, I just wonder whether... That's, where, that's where, where I wonder if the medium comes into it because it seems to me that we find antagonisms in things that should not be antagonistic, that should be fairly obvious. Would that be taking place if the, this proliferation of, of platforms no, were because, not there? No, because fans previously were not as exposed to each other. They would just be, they would just be saying to each other... 
at the pub well, or on the terraces you'd, yeah, that's you'd, funny isn't it and, is and it, ha- we have, wouldn't all experience it and therefore be part yeah. of the problem but or, also you yes, have part that, of the audience. that thing where you are in you are facing each other in public you are sat around a table with your mate who support, supports Arsenal with your mate who supports Spurs and you're having an argument about who's better Moussa Sissoko or Dranit Xhaka and in that situation 99 times out of 100 fans will find some way of agreeing to disagree or some sort of polite conclusion where they'll say, well, you know, Dranit Xhaka's a lot better at holding the ball up, but Sissoko's got more drive. And <laughs> <laughs> It's like I've been transported to the Holloway was Road. An, was that an Arsenal fan or a Tottenham fan? Either. Uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They all sound the same to me. You are bridging the divide like nobody else can with but your that, generic you know, cockney. Steve's right. What, what doesn't happen on Twitter is anyone, or very rarely happens, is anyone actually thinking, do you know what, this isn't a particularly sensible conversation to have. I understand why you think that and why you should understand why I think this. Let's just go our separate So ways. Twitter's changing fans' mentality. They're becoming different animals because of the media. I would say social media is, is changing our discourse on every subject. Okay. And that this idea that it's only online no longer applies. I think the way we interact with each other as humans in real life, IRL, mm-hmm. has changed because of social media. Basically, if your conversation with a group of football fans in the pub was the same as the conversation you have on Twitter, the conversation in the pub would end up with everybody pulling pieces of glass shrapnel out of their face yeah. and the entire building being But it's not even that, it's just the, it's, d- demolished. It's like the existential frustration of it. Like it's the it's the fact that you you just quite often just feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall because people just will not try to understand. It's like you're having an argument with your partner. You know that point that point where you have a where you're having a, a sort of a significant disagreement with your partner. A to do, if you and will. A to do. And you you There is a you, channel five, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Call back from episode one of our summer specials. And you just In your life two weeks ago, in ours two hours ago. In, and you, you reach that point or with a family member and, and that's probably a better example you're having an argument with your brother and you just can't there the comes a point where you're both so annoyed with the each other I love the idea that an argument with Kate is just simply too close to the bone yeah. <laughs> let's she steer, might be let's, listening let's steer away from that quickly you're having an uh, your, argument. Bro- your brother's at least what three European countries away yeah he's yeah, miles exactly, away yeah. he can't do anything you're having an argument with your really annoying younger brother <laughs> and and you, you get to the point where you're so annoyed with each other that you can't actually understand the, the, the train of thoughts that the other person is going through. You just feel like there's this sort of block where you think, why aren't you listening to what I'm saying? And every, every kind of disagreement on Twitter is like that, where you think you must be able to understand my point of view here, and yet you don't seem to be able to, to, to respect that it's even a valid point of view. And I think that, that is a real problem. Uh, the final point about this is quali- quality versus quantity. Again, it used to be a zero-sum game. You choose one or the other. But is there an argument to say that, that you can have quantity and quality if we are talking about all manner of new TV stations, TV channels, radio programs, podcasts, fan TV, fan groups, online forums, everything that has proliferated over the last 10, 20 years? Can they all have value? Can they all be legitimate? Can they all play a part, as we said last week, about everything playing a part in bringing together a legitimacy? Can all of those things have a place? And we just are hopefully able to understand their motivation, the context, and we we have them as a nice little smorgasbord of our football media interaction. I would say that the quality overall has never been higher. And the more more stuff there is, the better, because it keeps everybody at the top of their game but that doesn't mean that all of it is good quality is that is that true of writing just let's go round the round yeah. the room that's true of writing is it true of commentators 
I think in any line of work, yeah. the cream ultimately rises to the top, doesn't it? The, the, the quality will always end up going to the places where the profile and the money is, Don is, is, is the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So com- commentators along, co-commentators, Chinch? We're working on that. <laughs> hey, if Chinch has I'm his way... I'm actively working they'll on all be improving brilliant. things because but I'm not but sure there, cream has risen to but, the top. But there, anyway. are more, there are more television channels offering commentary... More yeah. work for pundits. It doesn't mean the work that they're doing is of value and is full of quality. So when we spoke last week about theory versus experience, all yeah. of these players have experience. Yes. But you still would want them t- to have a le- legitimacy, not simply to just be on air. No. There is a broadcaster who plays football, here, not but a footballer is... who broadcasts. They're completely, completely different things. And our challenge is to be a broadcaster who played the game. So you bring that experience to it, but you constantly learn how to broadcast and how to be fair. That's that's what I consider my role to be. Whether I'm wrong, I might be wrong, but I'm I'm probably not. Yeah, you can't have bottomless quantity, but also endless quality. No, mm. no. In anything, you need other people to be awful to make you look good. Yeah, well, that's that- what I consider. So if I'm relatively decent at this job, adequate. it's all the adequate. It's all the other numbskulls that actually mean that I'm considered to be. Uh, probably the best so if the cream rises <laughs> if the cream rises to the top chinch which bit of my uh, if, of I my wouldn't say I'm I cream I'm probably full fat milk I you don't know rennet you, <laughs> your hair colour suggests cream stop bringing it back to my hair colour on the final part of our summer specials next week we'll basically be summing things up in a slightly planned and not at all formulaic way we will wonder if it's all going to be terrible forever or if as Nana Cherry Chrissy Hine and Cher told us in 1994 love can build a bridge. But before all that, what you've really been waiting for. Yes. You know, in the shock Anthony Joshua defeat to Andy Ruiz Jr. in Madison Square Garden last month, the BBC boxing commentator Mike Stello described the third round of the heavyweight title fight as one of the greatest rounds in boxing history. Despite the grandeur of his statement, there was no hyperbole that night, as there isn't now, as I say that the third round of the now famous football fun is likely to match it. Each week of our summer series, I'm using the annual resource of my football trivia diary, a Christmas present from my mother-in-law, to ask a chinch-relevant seven quiz questions. Last week, we ended with the date at the beginning of May, so you'll have worked out we're going to be plundering May and June pretty hard for rounds three and four. A reminder of the scores at this pivotal halfway point. Stephen? Hang on, I just, I'm just i sorry, I'm midway through the cashew nuts. Um, <laughs> 11. Rory? 11. Chinch? Four, seven, eight. Uh, one. <laughs> one for me. One. All right, so there's some ground to be made, made up in round number so three. I'm not sure having more points in this quiz is, means you're better than anybody else. Does it? Yes. It does. That's how quizzes work. Very clear. Yeah. Literally how all quizzes work. This is from uh, Not Wednesday. countless. <laughs> pointless, is it? Pointless? <laughs> countless? Countless. It's a cross between countless and pointless. They're all at the, roughly the same time, so yeah. if you can watch both channels. Mm. Uh, Wednesday the 8th of May 2019 mm. proffered this question. Mm. Who was the first player to score a hat-trick in a European Cup slash Champions League final? It was European Cup. Chinch, would you like me to give you a multiple choice? Seeing that you're no, so far no, behind. Don't dumb it down for me. Don't don't dumb it down. Just ask me the okay. question again. Who was the first player to score a hat trick in a European Cup final? What? Can you <laughs> give me the year? <laughs> no. Oh. The other two I've written down, and Rory has whispered something in Chinch's ear. Chinch, you're going to write it down. Tony Phyllis Kirk. <laughs> Phyllis Kirk <laughs> is nearly the right answer. Question number two in round three. Monday the 13th of May. Managers from six different countries have won the Premier League. Scotland, Portugal... Italy, France, and Spain. But which is the sixth country? Scotland, Portugal, Italy, France, 
and Spain, what is the sixth country of a manager to win the Premier League title? God, this is painful. Mm. San Pellegrino. (laughs) (laughs) You've all written something down. Yeah. I'm going to stop giving chintz the answer. Yes, please stop doing that. Ah, hello again from the slightly displaced Hugh and Stephen. The phantom lawnmower struck again, this time during the questions. We did genuinely warn you last week. I hope you're waiting for this moment with bated breath. And here it is. The, the phantom lawnmower, by the way, is the god of acceptable pod content. <laughs> they do not like quizzes born of Football trivia of the day calendars given to you by your mother-in-law. They are arbiters of what makes, yes, entertaining content on podcasts. And they have decided to fly-mo somebody half to death because of that phantom lawnmower. It it is a shame because you gave round three of the quiz the the really intense (laughs) build-up, the sort of comparing it to round three of the Joshua Ruiz fight in New York as though it was the definitive round, the one that would go on and ultimately decide the outcome of the contest. And yet we've fallen terribly flat on our faces, a bit like Anthony Joshua. Yes, I have become particularly unstuck, um, but perhaps it will be just as exciting as was predicted Anyway, please accept our apologies and please be reassured that the following two minutes replaces two that contain only me reading questions and Chinch being completely perplexed by them all. So that you can continue to test your own trivia skills against ours, I'll read them out now and let you know the answers before giving you a score update from Rory Stephen Chinch as genuinely did happen. You'll know it's genuine on account of the fact that one of our group uh, fared particularly poorly. So we've had questions one and two. Of round three. Question three was from the 15th of May. It was this. Name the referee who received death threats following the Champions League semi-final between Chelsea and Barcelona in 2009. Yeah, this could have been one of two because there's been two really contentious Chelsea-Barcelona Champions League semi-finals. So write down your answer if you're playing along. The next question was from the 21st of May. Three players were sent off in the 2007 League Cup final between Arsenal and Chelsea. Emmanuel Adebayor, John Obi Mikel were two. Who was the other one? I've had several days to contemplate this now, and I still (laughs) don't know the answer. Uh, Question five was about the youngest player to ever play in a major international tournament for the Republic of Ireland. Was it Niall Quinn in 1988, Steve Staunton in 1990, Gary Kelly in 1994, or Stephen Reid in 2002? This really tested Chinch's desire to play along with the game. He had multiple choice. And yet he still was determined to not write anything. Yeah, he left the room at this point. And Rory pointed out that uh, Steve Staunton was probably already in his mid-30s in 1990. So it definitely wasn't him. Steve Staunton was in his mid-30s pretty much throughout his career. Question six from the 27th of May. What connects Mark Robbins in season 94-95, Stephen Cabber in 06-07, David Nugent in 09-10 and George Boyd in 14-15. Four players, Mark Robbins, Stephen Cabber, David Nugent, and George Boyd. What connects those four players? Oh, with the benefit of hindsight, it all seems so obvious. <laughs> you are being particularly smug uh, with all of this. So those four players, what connects uh, those four players? And finally, question seven of round three. Which Frenchman was the only one to play on the opening day of the Premier League in August 
two. And you remember at that point, uh, Rory wrote it down so quickly that he threw his pen in declamatory manner onto the table, convinced that he had yet another question answer correct. Turned up his collar and puffed out his chest. Uh, so then, to the answers. Hopefully you've had enough time to write down what you think and not enough time to Google them. Uh, the two that we heard, the answers were the first European Cup final hat-trick was scored by Ferent Pushkas, uh, not Tony Philiskirk, as Chinch uh, mentioned that it might be. And of the nationalities of Premier League winning managers, which one was left off that list? It was, Stephen? It was the Chilean Manuel Pellegrini in 2014. With Manchester City. So then, the ones that we had to read you are as follows. Question three. Was the referee who received death threats following Chelsea and Barcelona in 2009, the Champions League semi-final, which was particularly bad-tempered? The answer was not Anders Frisk. Which is what I wrote down. And the answer was, Stephen? It's Tom Henning of Raybo. Uh, is indeed correct. The uh, third player to be sent off in the 2007 League Cup final between Arsenal and Chelsea after Adebayor and John Obi Mikel uh, was Colo Torre. I feel like I still don't know the answer to that question, even though you, I've heard you say it. <laughs> and I've just uttered it and in your life twice now. Uh, the next question, uh, the answer was Gary Kelly in 1994 as being the youngest player uh, to play for uh, Republic, the Republic of Ireland in a major tournament. Those four players in question six were connected by the fact that they all played for two relegated teams in the same season. Mark Robbins, Stephen Cabot, David Nugent and George Boyd all played for two relegated teams in the same season. And finally, of course, it was Eric Cantona, who's the Frenchman to play in the opening day of the Premier League in August 1992. So... It was going to be exciting. Did it turn out to be exciting? The scores are as follows. Stephen? I only got two in that round, so I now have 13. And Rory? Who, again, did phenomenally well, considering how badly he started the quiz. Six out of seven in that round to take him to 17. And Chinch? God, hang on a second. Got zero in that round, so still has only one. Really is all to play for. The incredible denouement, incredible because it's lasted this long, and denouement because we need it to end, will be on next week's pod. And here's the best news. It will be uninterrupted by any electrical garden machines from the netherworld. So before we go, a reminder that we'd like you to send any tales of your playing days neatly wrapped in a soccer story to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. In the meantime, please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Rory, and to Andy and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece menu to enjoy very soon indeed we should have just got changed to do four soccer stories we could have done four soccer stories that would have been more entertaining it would have been editorially much more interesting it would have been educational uh, but what happened as a result of the glitch in episode three was that uh, the interruption made by your dear son George has now, unfortunately, been sent into the ether because he made his podcast debut. He, he's got a whole life ahead of himself to achieve podcasting fame. I'm sure he will survive. But I hope you've learned a valuable lesson to do less work and give more to Chinch. And do you know what was particularly amusing about this? After completing the quiz, the original, original time that we did it, I, in a particularly relieved manner, threw the questions away and, of course, therefore, have been attempting just to go to the back reaches of my mind to pick them out again. You, you think you threw the questions away. What you actually did was just leave them littered on the floor <laughs> of my dining room. So it's actually me there? who Are threw them there? away. No, we've there? had several family visits and occasions since then. I have not left your detritus just lying around.